I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. Today I have the great pleasure to speak to Eva K. Unterman, who is living now in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I heard about you, Eva, reading a piece by your granddaughter, Sophie, that I was very touched about. And I want to speak more about with you today because she was talking about your memories as a survivor of the Holocaust and how the memories and experience and insights that you have relate to the terrible situation with children being separated from their parents, the immigrant children in the United States. And we'll get to all of that. But first, let me welcome you to Grandmothers on the Move. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And there are so many issues now. There always have been, but I think they are just so much more powerful and unusual. So I am, of course, as an immigrant and as a child Holocaust survivor, very much interested in what is happening to children who are being held against their parents' will and so on. I actually had a letter published in the Tulsa World when I addressed that. So Mm -hmm. there are many, many things that I feel we, particularly Holocaust survivors, who have experienced incredible cruelty and indifference, should be addressing. You know, Eva, why don't we just dive right in and talk about that, since it's so much on your mind and certainly on mine to your quite horrific story in in your own childhood of cruelty and and suffering and separation, how that resonates in you in this moment where you see something quite different, but with a terrible echo of similarity happening to other children in the United States in 2018. How does that unfold for you, Eva? In a very powerful way, Ilana. When I was first aware of it, I couldn't believe that in the United States of America, children would be separated from their parents. My great fear, my personal fear during all the years of the Shoah, the ghetto and the concentration camps, was that I might be separated from my mother. I was afraid of that, and that was the one thing that gave me hope and courage, the fact that I was with my mother, who was a very strong woman, and I felt that I was protected simply being with her. So to imagine young children, some uh, toddlers and some older kids, not feeling the love and the protection that they get from their parents was and is very troubling. 
It brings back memories. Well, the memories are always there, but they are, I don't dwell on them. Something happens, and of course, it triggers the feeling, the emotion. So to me, that is very, very troubling. And also, as an immigrant, I had a totally different experience than the people trying to come here from Central America. I came because I met an American soldier, a Jewish guy from Brooklyn, New York, who was stationed in Germany during the Korean War. And that is the reason I eventually came to the U.S., because we got married in your hometown, in Toronto, as I mentioned to you, <laughs> in right. incredible synagogue. So that was why I came here. But I am an immigrant, just the same. I was not a refugee. There is quite a difference. I didn't try to leave, not at that time, in 1953, because I felt not safe where I was. It was just that I met my future husband, and that's why I came here. And that was quite a story by itself even then and I think that many American born American citizens don't realize what a hassle it is to try and come to this country the reason that I came to Toronto is because my husband's family had relatives there and I was not able to get visa papers to come to the United States so being determined my mother's daughter (laughs) When Herb and I, after he left Germany, I just knew him actually a short time. And looking back, my goodness, I could have been marrying or or going to the U.S., you know, who knows what could have been. But I was fortunate. He was a decent guy. And we got married. But the way that came about... When I went, well, I lived in Ludwigsburg, Germany, near Stuttgart. The American embassy was in a town called Karlsruhe. I went there to apply for a visa, and they told me that was impossible because even though all of us, Shoah survivors, were at that time, we didn't have a nationality except when it came to immigration. We were on the quota of the country of our birth, which meant I was on the Polish quota. And it would take years and years, if at all, that I could get papers to come to the U.S. We were stateless, what I was trying to say earlier. But while there, I saw some posters on the wall that Canada was looking for some domestic help. And I thought, hmm, I can probably pull this off. So I took the train to the town in Germany where the Canadian embassy was, and they too had all kinds of posters on the walls looking for domestic help. Coming there from my background, a little lie wouldn't mean a thing. And so I applied to come to Canada on this domestic visa. And I was granted one, even though I think that the person who interviewed me knew that I was not used to work as domestic because he kind of grinned and asked to look at my hand, my fingernails, and they were quite nicely manicured. And he said to me, do you peel potatoes often? And I said, oh, all the time. (laughs) Do you have any references? 
Well, I gave him some name of neighbors that I was going to tell. If someone contacts you, please tell them that I'm working for you. Anyway, <laughs> I did get papers. Really? And I left from Stuttgart through Paris to La Havre, came to Halifax, came to Toronto on February 2nd, 1953. Herb and his parents were waiting for me. And his relatives arranged for us to be married on the 4th. I tore up the domestic papers and stayed in Toronto until I got my visa. Married to an American citizen, it still took six months. That's an extraordinary story. <laughs> well, everybody, I tell you, everyone, my generation, or even younger, who has come through the Holocaust, people think that we all have the same stories. Often, I tell them, absolutely not. There is a common thread through all our experiences in German-occupied Europe, but then everyone who survived has their own unique story. Absolutely. I couldn't help but read and watch some of your talks and see how busy you are, how determined you are to continue talking about the Shoah, about the Holocaust, and sharing the experiences. And when I was listening to you, you know, this idea of not just hearkening to the past, but guarding against human rights abuses in the future. I always, I always tell students, if I may interrupt, yes. I speak about particularly the children, having been so fortunate to have survived as a child. I was in Auschwitz, I was in various concentration camps. I have a strong sense of obligation to tell and to remember the children who were killed. But I also tell the story to warn the young people of today about our future, about the power of propaganda. What they should know, they that we humans are capable of doing to each other, so it might never happen again. Having said that, that used to be our slogan, you know, never again. Absolutely. And of course, I find it painful and frustrating when I read and see how children are suffering in different parts of the world. Not the same procedure, not the same people, but it's heartbreaking. So never again is unfortunately not happening. My heart goes out to children anywhere where they are the victims of all that the adults, the grown-ups, uh, their wars and whatever is happening, that children are the ones who suffer the most. And I will always, as long as I can, try to do my best to, in my own little way, assist, help, reach out. I feel so fortunate to have your voice, Eva. It's a precious and, and principled thing for all of us. I grew up with Never Again as well, as a young Jewish girl in a very progressive and political family. Uh, I grew up, Never Again had all sorts of connotations. And of course, it was my parents' generation who were the children of survivors who came over to Canada. I have to say, Eva, I've been thinking about this so much, and it's partly why Sophie's piece struck me so deeply and I wanted to speak to you, is that when I was growing up, Never Again felt like an important reminder, but not a very tangible one, not a very real one. It was like it was the trauma of my parents' generation 
and their mm -hmm. parents' generation. I respected it. I honored it. I certainly understood where it came from deep in my bones. Mm -hmm. But I didn't feel it myself mm -hmm. as a real warning for the present. In this moment, watching what's unfolding in the United States, watching the rise of neo-fascism and of new expressions of fascism and people using Hitlerian iconography and symbols, and now the way that immigrants from Central America are being treated and really from everywhere are being treated, it's like a resurgent, the never again piece that felt like a trauma-based, important reminder, but not something to guard against in my generation so much, but just to keep the memory close and to honor it. Now I feel like, no, we better go back and listen to the Eva K. Untermans and to all of the survivors who have been sharing their wisdom and teaching it down through the generation you know. because something's happening now again. Never again is not just for Jews. It's critical for all unspeakable abuses of any group of people being denied their human rights. Absolutely. I, I feel exactly the same way. Now, we, the survivors, did not talk about our horrible years, in my case, from 1939 to 45. In Germany, in Austria, it was 1933 and on. But we didn't talk about it. No one did. It wasn't until the early 70s that we started talking. Elie Wiesel's book came out. There was a film and people started talking about it. And I understand, having been told by historians and others, that it takes a generation almost for something to become history and become real and also less painful to talk about. The wounds at first were too raw to even attempt to touch them. And neither I nor some friends of mine who went through similar horrible things talked about it. We just didn't. It just didn't come up. Now looking back, I think, how could that have been? But anyway, that's how it was. Early 70s, a teacher who was a history buff who taught in a small town in Oklahoma, close to Tulsa, traveled to Europe, visited a couple of Dachau and another concentration camp, came back home and was wondering if anyone in Tulsa maybe has been to one of these awful places. So he called Temple Israel then and asked, and they gave him my name. I was surprised that they even knew because I certainly didn't talk about it. I was a preschool teacher at that time at the temple. So he called me and wanted to know if I would come to his school and tell my story. And I said, story of what? Absolutely not. If you want to know anything about the work I'm doing with young children, I'll be happy to. But he insisted. And he wouldn't let go. And he called and he came over and persuaded me once that I should visit his class. He would not ask me any difficult questions. So he picked me up and I went. Well, let me tell you, from then on, this has been my passion to reach out to teachers. I admire and respect teachers enormously. 
We in Oklahoma do not mandate Holocaust education, but with a couple of teachers and the Jewish Federation of Tulsa, I founded what is now the Council for Holocaust Education. We have several hundred teachers that we assist financially with trips to various Holocaust museums, and we have seminars. We have this summer, a summer institute that teachers apply to. When you educate teachers and they develop an understanding and passion and love of children and history, history teachers, social studies, English teachers, it doesn't end with them. It continues. Mm-hmm. And we now know, I know personally, several students who were in the 80s and the 90s that are now educators themselves and continue studying and telling the stories. Mm-hmm. This is, if I may say, very important because mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this for a long time. There are grandmothers mm-hmm. who were teachers who are retired now, but they have a wealth of education and knowledge. And if they can want to volunteer and help teachers, that would be a wonderful, wonderful way of continuing their knowledge of the subjects and Mm -hmm. love of children. So teachers, grandmas, if you're there, Mm -hmm. look into your school system I know they would love to have you. There are ways you can continue what you've done all your lives, and it would be so very important. There's a continuity there that's so precious. One of the reasons I've been doing this podcast, Eva, is that I feel that we don't hear enough from grandmothers and older women in particular. Could you make the connection for us between your experiences as a child and how that motivated you or led you to speak out so strongly and urgently about what's happening to immigrant children being torn from their parents now? Well, uh, it is a natural thing with me. I have never decided this is what I'm going to focus on. It's just there. It's urgent. It's real. There are children all over the world who need, desperately need help. I mean, we could go on, as you well know, what's happening to children in Syria and here and there. You know, I always ask students why they think that we Jewish children were such a enemy of the mighty German Reich. Why the children? And I must say that all of the students that I have spoken to, they know. Why? Because children represent the future. So if there is any plans for genocide of any group of people, yes, it's the children who will be killed first. So this is extreme cases, but the lesser cases, and it is in our own country. The powerful people who really pull the strings, unfortunately, many, not all, nothing is all, many simply don't care. And we live at a time when we have this, I don't know how to describe it, but people need this incredible luxury and don't realize or don't care that their foolishness could help so much various children in our own community. I call it foolishness, just like I just written a little piece about our president's idea of having a military parade. $18 million. 
Mm-hmm. We don't need military parades. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that the U.S. is a strong country. I like our parade. We have the bands, the school bands, and Snoopy, and who knows what. Great fun stuff goes on. <laughs> right. we, don't, we don't need goose-stepping Nazi-like soldiers. I cannot, I won't go into it, because you well know, every single day, there is something else that's mind-boggling. But this isn't only here, and it's not only now. It is just because we have such incredible communication. Uh, We now know in real time what is going on. When we were in the camps, there would be maybe something somewhere on page 20 of the New York Times. But now, Ilana, we watch on television as people and children are suffering. I will never forget that little boy's body that was washed up. You remember that? Absolutely. I think it's amazing on everyone's memory. I mean, how can that be? Why on earth do we allow it? And here in the U.S., especially in this part of the country, with a church steeple on every corner, and people don't make the connection, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I do think that we, grandmothers, who have experienced all sorts of situations, even Oklahomans, they remember the Dust Bowl, the old folks. They remember what happened. We older citizens, grandmothers, I'm 85, we have an obligation, a moral obligation to try to do our best to help in whatever way we can. I think to grandmothers, our children are, I know, it's not I think, I know, are precious. Well, our children and also our neighbors' children and immigrant children. And we must in some way gather our strength and help. And we can, we can, in small ways here and there, but we can. Yes, for sure. Eva, to go back to something you said earlier, you said that part of what got you through your experience as a young six, seven-year-old going through Auschwitz, and I know you were in Theresienstadt, you were in some of the most terrifying concentration camps and the death march. And I read and I've heard from you that it really was being tethered, keeping that lifeline with your mother that you feel kept you alive through some of the deepest horrors of our history. I, I am convinced that had I not been with my mother, you and I would not be speaking now because there would be no way. First of all, she was a very strong person who made me believe that we will survive. When they shaved my head and I was crying in in Auschwitz, she said, hair grows back. We'll be okay. When I wasn't allowed in the ghetto unit or in lodge before the ghetto to attend school that I was looking forward to, this will be over. I believe her. If she really believed it, I don't know. But she protected me in so many ways. And then I must add, we were very lucky because I'm sure there were other people who were as strong and had such courage as my mother did that unfortunately didn't. But so the combination of luck and of perseverance, never ever to give up 
And I stress that with students. They won't be, thank goodness, in that type of a situation, but they will have difficulties in their lives. And please don't give up. There are always way out. Difficult, but if that front door doesn't let you in, climb through the back window, whatever it takes. Young people are strong both physically, emotionally, psychologically. So that is one message that I feel they need to hear. And I think that we, grandmothers who have gone through whatever, no one reaches this age without difficulties in one form or another. We can encourage young people. And that is our strength and our mission. And whenever people ask me, now what do you do? You know, do you play mahjong, this and that, they're bored. I think, oh, for goodness sake, how can you be bored with all the opportunities that we have to do that which we really believe in? And if I may, I do want to tell you about my little personal work that I should call it work. It's really a privilege with YWCA. Did I tell you that? No, but please do. Okay, I enjoy knitting. I've always been knitting. I don't know how to follow patterns. I don't have much of a formal education period, but I have always read a great deal and studied on my own. So my knitting has been (laughs) very simply scarves. I love putting colors together. So I have knitted scarves for all my friends, for all the teachers I know, just been always doing it. And then one day, a friend of mine came over with her 11-year-old daughter, Valeria, came with her. And it was a hot day, which is always in Oklahoma. It's over 100 degrees right now. So I asked Valeria if she would like to go to the pool. And she said she would like to, but she didn't know how to swim. Okay. I immediately knew I had to do something about it. I never learned to swim. But I thought, this cannot be. Young children need to learn to swim. So I knew, of course, the neighborhood where they live. And I looked up a YW. WCA in that area. And I made an appointment. I went there, enrolled Valeria in swimming lessons. And to make a wonderful story for me personally, and very satisfying, what I have been doing since, my scarves are selling. I'm selling them in a little boutique gift shop. And all the proceeds that I get from the scarves go to teach swimming. So I love what I'm doing. And many children, where they cannot afford swimming lessons, are learning to swim. So there are ways we ordinary grandmothers can do all kinds of stuff. It's such an important message right now, I think, Eva, especially because there is a feeling of helplessness, I think, when As you said earlier, every day there's some new dimension to the intolerance, to the legislating of of hate, and that can feel quite overwhelming. It seems to me that grandmothers don't get paralyzed in quite the same way. Mm -hmm. Awaking people who have experienced life, you know, and know all the various issues that came before us and are totally stunned by what's happening now. And I said, now, because this is the time we live and we know. And there have always been terrible incidents against immigrants. I mean, my goodness, there were always obstacles, but we managed. Yes. And you know, 
what's so interesting to, to me was that when I interviewed two of the women from Granny's Respond, this action at the end of July, yeah. one of them who was speaking to me, he is the child of Holocaust survivors. I had no idea when I just asked Granny's Respond, mm. I would like to speak to a couple of you. As you say, there's this awakening, and perhaps it's always been there amongst some segment of the population, but I see amongst all these grandmothers this alarm bell that's ringing. Mm. Uh, particularly around the separation of children from their parents absolutely, by the government. Absolutely. That is something that is totally unbelievable to those of us who have experienced that, whether it was a Nazi-occupied Europe or whatever. It is just something that has touched everyone. Of course, those of us who have experienced such terror connect to it naturally, but it has touched many people. I cannot find words to even speak of this horrendous, uh, I consider it kidnapping. This has to be resolved. How many of these parents and children don't even, they don't even know where the, the father, the mother, the child yes. is? How can that be? Yes. This is devious. This is terrible yes. to do that sort of thing. We can't allow that. For Americans, I cannot imagine no. urgency and depth of disbelief and horror at what's happening. Mm -hmm. For people outside of the country too, though, yes. these alarm bells are loud for us too. As you say, it never again takes on a new dimension for all. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been just tossed away. How can we turn our back on them and put them in camps? The word a child in camp offends me. I cannot. <laughs> well, I'm sure you feel the same way. I absolutely do. And for me, it's the echo of history. It's a deep story that I grew up with, but not a lived story. Almost by osmosis, I absorbed it through the generation. Correct. The, That's the how we actually learn the, the most, mm -hmm. is through the connection you absorb the, your grandparents' feeling. It's sort of like the emotional DNA that we carry. Yeah. Speak to you and knowing how I feel, it isn't like I one day decided, okay, because of this, I will do that. It's just there. You know, that deep ethical imperative that I certainly grew up with memory and action and having a social conscience and caring about social justice, but never again really in my mind historically was about being protective of the Jewish trauma. And I now agree. I experience it quite differently now. Mm -hmm. When I'm speaking to my children, it's, the lesson isn't just about the persecution of our people. We now sit in different places of privilege. It's not to forget or to in any way diminish the persecution that Jews have experienced, but it's to understand that it may not look the same when it comes again. Well, the thing is also that we Jews, having been dispersed all over the world, and we experienced, no matter where, that we had to hide and we had to run and all that we, I mean, our forefathers, foremothers, it is just that it is in our history and we are commended to look out for and help communities here and it is universal yeah, and yeah. I really appreciate what you're doing. I never thought of grandmothers as a unit, you know, that we mm. really have 
the knowledge, the experience, and the time. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be at work by nine or eight o'clock in the morning. We don't have to have dinner ready for the kids when they come home. We have the time and we have the experience. Ilana, it's a wonderful idea. I know quite a few good friends, grandmothers. Not all have the health to actually do certain things, but then there are those of us who who can and should and do. The truth is, there are grandmothers who are still having to work. There are grandmothers who are raising grandchildren for all sorts of reasons. There are all the time. I keep hearing about it. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, the different circumstances of grandmothers is as varied as our human beings. Making this connection with other people, this is so important, and Mm -hmm. it is very energizing. I feel energized by our conversation now. We are not just unto ourselves. There's some real reassurance that there are women like you in our lives who have lived Mm -hmm. through some of the greatest atrocities of our time. But you are also the engines that drive us at certain moments because you know, and I hear this from grandmothers so often, you know that we can get through it. It's going to take all of us. That's right. I never thought of a group that consists of grandmothers till Mm -hmm. I heard from you. And it was like a whole new window opening there Yes, we are connected in so many ways. Bigotry and difference and, and hatred do not know borders. So amidst all this crazy stuff that's going on, there is also a recognition of trying to come to terms with our history, whether it's Native Americans, which we are here in Oklahoma, you know, all that this was tribal land, and African Americans, and all Americans, you know, at the time when there are those who want to divide us. And that is another thing that I find very, very scary. It's not a natural disaster. It's people who definitely try to divide and are accomplishing it. And we have to stand against that. I think many people are waking up. That's just a perfect note to end on because I think that, Eva, you are one of the people in our world who keeps us awake and insists that we stay awake. I am so grateful to you for having introduced me to this and connecting with other grandmothers. And I do want us to stay in touch. I would love that, Eva. It would be just a privilege and a joy. I mean, it is really in Yiddish a mitzvah. So thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.